My fact this week is that there was a Disneyland in England 569 years before there was one in America. <laughs> yeah. Well, ooh, it, what, it must have it was, been very bad boring. <laughs> It's just a slide and a swing. It's just, just a field overrun with mice. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it was a field, so you're half right. This is from a, a book, a new book called A New Dictionary of English Field Names, which is set to be... A that sounds like a hell of a read. <laughs> Welcome to Anna Tushinsky's Book Club. <laughs> Membership one. <laughs> Um, this No, it sounds great. And The Telegraph actually did a review of it, this obscure book. And basically, it's this guy who's gone back and traced 45,000 field names from various things like old tithe records and things like that. He's called Paul Cavill. Um, and he's warning that... And they... he's single, ladies. <laughs> he's out there playing the field. <laughs> I'm not having this because I'm a huge fan of Paul's. Um, he's, he's warned that these field names could be dying out. No one seems to be naming their fields anymore. Can you believe it? But... Oh, no. <laughs> Call the Avengers. <laughs> and yet they used to. So it's a really important thing. I'm actually surprised farmers don't still name their fields because the reason you do it is if you've got to say, like, oh, if you're like, you know, where's the collie? Oh, I left him in you know, that field that's like three along and five up, it's much easier to say, oh, I left him in Disneyland. And as, so this one was called Disneyland because it, it was in, this was in 1386. He found the record, as in the record was in 1386. He hasn't been writing the book for that long. <laughs> and it was the Disney family, and they were called that because they were orig originally from a place called Disney in France. And so that was why it was called that. I guess he had one field. But yeah, they all used to be named. Well, there, is, there are still quite a lot of fields which do have names. Mm. So there is a UK field name database with over 200,000 fields. Um, and do you know what the most popular name is? What? Big Field. <laughs> yeah, I saw people online, uh, so on Twitter, they were sort of, it was asked, does anyone know of field names that might not be logged, or just, is there one near you? And a lot of people responded. My favourite one was from a guy called Tim, who said, we have a first humpy and a second humpy, so named as they're both humpy, and one is in front of the other. <laughs> There, 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 there was there was Sodom Sodom Field and Gomorrah Close. Those are field names. That's quite creative. Yeah. So they did seem to be quite creative sometimes. They had um, well, they had ketchup piece in Northamptonshire, and that actually was a mushroom field because ketchup, the original ketchup, was made of mushrooms. So the first ever ketchup was made in 1727 out of mushrooms. 
that's ketchup, please. There was apparently, there was a field called Please Your Honour, and this was in Essex, and it's thought apparently to be the place where the Lord of the Manor arranged to meet local girls. <laughs> and I, you don't want to think too much about no, the connection no. there. Um, and actually, for the locals, it was useful to know these names, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you had a, a field with the word dike or sitch in it, um, that meant that you knew that there was water in it, so you knew it was wet and boggy. And if, you, if it was called, yes, your honour, or whatever, you need, to, you need to leave it alone on Friday nights, I suppose. Yeah. But, but it meant that you knew something about these fields before you went there. Yeah, yeah. Like if they were a weird shape. Mm. Um, there was, you got things like footed stocking and ladies' gown tail if they were shaped like mm. what those things. Okay. <laughs> Could you get in trouble if you sold your field with a misleading name? If I had a tiny field and I called it Big Field, were... <laughs> Could I be sold for mis-selling? No, because I think only the biggest idiot purchaser is going to buy a field off you without coming and checking it out. <laughs> not even asking for the measurements. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, it's got a big field. I'm not telling you anymore. <laughs> I'm in. What was the book called, Anna? Uh, the book is called A New Dictionary of English Field Names. Because there is a... So that's the new one, because there is a book called English Field Names, A Dictionary, which is a previous book of English Field Names. Mm-hmm. And that is by a man called John Field. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and it's not just a list of names in his own family. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, we need to move on to our next fact very shortly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Then we should do some Disneyland stuff, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Or some Disney stuff. Um, so between 1993 and 2010, Miramax was owned by Disney which means technically these are, current, these are Disney films, Pulp Fiction, Bridget Jones's Diary, Scream, Gangs of New York, and Mansfield Park. Um, Disneyland actually has a special kind of invisible green. The resign is... A, I don't think green. you can be invisible and green, can you? Um, or can you? Well... No, no, not really. But it's, it's, it was designed to conceal the less glam bits because obviously the park needs to have, you know, unsexy stuff like, um, like bins and fences and things. And it's not, it's not part of the cool Disney fantasy, is it? Yeah. So, so the, the designers came up with a particular kind of green which you don't really notice. And they call it no see green because you can't really see it. Oh, Although I don't know what happens if you're looking for a bin in Disneyland. It must be quite <laughs> irritating. Yeah. Um, th- so there's a thing about uh, fields, which is that they have all... Well, not all. There's a thing about fields, which is that a lot of them have changed shape in the last 40 years. Really? Yeah. So they've gone from, like, ladies' gown to London stocking or... Exactly, yeah. Well, they've, got, they've gone from rectangular to circular. Huh? Really? So oh. if you look at the farms in America from oh, above, yeah. they are circular. All the fields are circular. Uh, and Crop circles. No. <laughs> No, no, no. It's the aliens. It's not the aliens. They're here. No, we know what it is. It's it's circular fields because it's better for irrigation, so it's a more effective way. You can have a well almost in the middle of the field, you know. Yeah, you have one of these kind of um, squirting fountains that goes in a circle, right? Yeah. So it only hits. Yeah. Yeah. It's really efficient, and we know the guy who invented it, but it's creating a massive problem because it's sucking up all America's water. Because it's so good that it means that farmers then plant more intensively and they grow crops which require more water because they've got this more efficient system. So there's a thing called the Ogallala Aquifer, which is under the Great Plains in America. 
Uh, it's a huge underwater pond, basically, um, which covers 174,000 square miles. Wow. It's one pond, uh, for a given value of pond. Um, <laughs> and it's being, it's, being, it's being emptied really rapidly, and it's going to take hundreds of thousands of years of rain to replace it. So there's a problem. Wow. Okay. So they shouldn't have been so good, basically. Yeah. Because they are good farmers, the Americans. So they're the world's number one exporter of food by value, which is kind of unsurprising. They're a big country. Do you guys know what number two is? Netherlands. These guys know. Is it, is it Belgium? It's Belgium, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Denmark, Denmark, it must be Denmark. <laughs> They're number three. The poor old Dutch can't grow a thing, though. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and no, it is, it is the Netherlands. It, and this is kind of unbelievable. How are you so good at farming? So the number, by amount, the world number two exporter of food by value, and they have 270 times smaller land mass than the US. And like, apparently there have just been all these incredible farming innovations over the last sort of 20 years. Um, so there are greenhouses that are like up to 175 acres big, one greenhouse. I think all the greenhouses in the Netherlands take up the size of Manhattan or a bit bigger than Manhattan. And, yeah. Wow. So here we were making fun of that field book, and yet everyone in the audience is like, give me a copy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, am it's amazing. The Netherlands is so good at farming, there is now a black market in cow poo. <laughs> <laughs> it's really more of a brown market, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's because there's loads of... There are, um, the Netherlands as a country produces 76 billion kilos of manure every year. Okay, and who's buying it? Uh... <laughs> Well, you're only legally allowed to produce a certain amount because it, um, it's mm. you know, quite uh, pollutive stuff if, not, if it's not treated right. But there is manure fraud where people trade it secretly or they spread it on their land at night to avoid being spotted. Wow. Yeah. This is obviously a good fertiliser, but you're not allowed enough, too much of it. Oh, really? Any poo smugglers in tonight? <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like a euphemism for something, doesn't it? I don't know what that is. cute name for your baby or something. Do you call your baby that? I feel like you could. Poo smuggler? Yeah, to call your baby a poo smuggler. That's what they're doing all the time, isn't it? That's smuggling poo. Yeah, and they're in their bottom. <laughs> That's why you smuggle things. <laughs> how, often, well, how often at an airport do the people go up and go, ah, <laughs> what's this then, sir? <laughs> It is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that every year in Japan, there is an annual anti-Valentine march held by a group known as the Revolutionary Alliance of Unpopular Men. Wow. Are they recruiting? <laughs> I don't think they'd let you in on the... I don't... <laughs> So yeah, this is an annual thing that happens in Japan. These men are sick of uh, what they say is romantic capitalism, and of course they're single, and they, they go on street marches to sort of say this is too much. And uh, it's currently being led by a guy called Takayuki Akimoto, um, and he, he likes to have placards and he likes to take to the streets. They only do it uh, once a year, but obviously they like to have anything that has groups of people together to be protested against. So Christmas is a big thing as well. So they, uh, they uh, protest an annual Christmas uh, march. Um, but unfortunately, in 2018, they couldn't get the permit for the park they wanted to do it in, so they had to do it indoors in a room instead. So no one... <laughs> 
really saw that one. Um, <laughs> and they had to clear all the video games out of the way. And <laughs> I mean, apparently there, there aren't many of them, are there? No. It's a handful. It's double figures. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it, I hope it's double figures. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite controversial in Japan, isn't it? The whole Valentine's Day thing, people have really gone off it. And it's because this is something we've briefly mentioned before, but actually the 14th of February in places like Japan, Korea, Thailand, is just a day when women are supposed to give presents to men. And then the, uh, exactly a month later, men are supposed to give presents to women. But it, apparently it's really an obligation, and so women are getting really pissed off because they feel like on the 14th of February, they have to give chocolates for instance to all of their male colleagues and so women are saying you know i'm spending hundreds and hundreds of pounds every year on colleagues i don't know or like just giving them chocolates and then on the 14th of march the men have to do it three or two times more so then they have to spend even more it sounds like it's got kind of out of control yeah but i think you know it's not that bad for especially for countries that export vast amounts of flowers <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> But there's this whole vocabulary of the chocolate. So it, this is called giri choco, or uh, obligation chocolate, basically. Obligation chocolate. <laughs> Nothing says I love you like obligation chocolate. <laughs> um, and there's also honme, which is chocolate for your true love. Uh, and there, there are now tomo choco, which is friend chocolates. And the best kind, jiko choco, which is chocolate given to yourself as an act of self-love. Wow. Oh, that's quite nice. And apparently most... When you say self-love, you just mean... I just mean... No, no funny business. You that's don't... what it says on the card when you get your chocolates you send to yourself. All right, no funny business, man. You know, in China, they also have a group that is like the Alliance of Unpopular Men in, uh, in Japan. They, they have single people who try to pull pranks on Valentine Day in order to stop people having a good night. Um, so there was one case in 2004 where a group of single people in Shanghai purchased every single odd-numbered seat for a cinema. <laughs> that is strong, isn't yeah, it? It's very That's good. really good. Yeah, so yeah, it was a movie called Be uh, Love Story, um, Beijing Love Story, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, Valentine's was slightly different. Uh, for some places in Europe, you would choose your Valentine by drawing lots in a village. So basically, it would be Valentine's Day, and everyone would write down their names, and they put it in a big hat, and then you pick one out, and that would be your Valentine. And some people said that then the courtship was obliged to last until the following Valentine's Day. Yeah. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to get old John the Pooh smuggler, do you? <laughs> No. <laughs> Actually, this is a bit like how Romans did it. Uh, so Romans basically had invented the origin of Valentine's Day, which was Lupercalia, which was around that February time, and that was sort of morphed into Valentine's Day by a pope a few centuries later. But yeah, what they did was, first of all, the men sacrificed a goat and a dog, and then they got the hides of the animals they'd sacrificed, and they chased after women whipping them. And then, the, and the women wanted it. They, they queued up to be whipped, because they believed it made them fertile. Um, but after all that happened, everyone was naked, and then I believe... <laughs> you, you've buried the lead on this story. <laughs> I thought you'd assume it's ancient Rome. And then everyone picked names from a jar, just like that. And the name that you picked from a jar was the person you were paired up with to do sexy stuff with for the duration of the festival. 
and that was their Valentine's, and it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> There's another old English um, te um, technique for Valentine's Day, which was your Valentine would be the first person you laid eyes on on the day. Okay, so this led to some people hiding below the windows of the person they wanted to date. <laughs> and then as soon as they woke up, just going, surprise! <laughs> and that's actually mentioned in Hamlet. Um, Ophelia, is it? Yeah, Ophelia says, tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning be time, and I am made at your window to be your Valentine. Wow. So, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Valentine cards? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so th there's, there was a tradition in the 19th century, as well as sending nice cards, of sending horrible valentines to people. They were called vinegar valentines, and um, they were there were specific cards for all kinds of things. So there were cards where you could say the recipient was drunk or ugly or stuck up, all kinds of stuff. Um, there were specific cards for grocers being rude about them, saying you've cheated me on my groceries. <laughs> Which doesn't feel strictly relevant to Valentine's Day, but it was just a good opportunity. There was one with a picture of the man in the moon saying, this is the only man who smiles on you. <laughs> and they were sent without postage paid, so you had to pay to receive it. And they were more popular. Apparently by the 1880s, they were more popular and better selling than actual Valentine's cards that said nice stuff. And they're so weird. If you look them up, there's one that's a coiled snake with the head of this gentleman wearing a top hat, and it just says, beware the snake in the grass. And there's another which has... They, they had these really good rhymes quite often, so there's one whose rhyme is, you're as vulgar a cad as I'd wish to meet, and what's more, you're devoured by pride and conceit. But I fancy before very long you'll find out that everyone thinks you're an ignorant lout. <laughs> Imagine that on Valentine's Day. Well, at least it's something. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. Tell the police, old John smuggles poo. <laughs> Very creepy. Okay. I feel like old John is now more important to this podcast than I am. Um, here's a kind of fun thing that you can do on Valentine's Day. There's a French inventor who has invented to make part of the experience of the day when you're in a couple um, even better. It's a flatulence pill. So it's designed so that you have it at the beginning of the date and if you need to go and have a fart, you don't need to leave the table as I do. Uh, my wife and I It's, it's usually table. about this time of the podcast that you do, guys. <laughs> guys, I'll be back. <laughs> when I bring my mic, stupid move. Um, <laughs> It's Sorry, a, so what, what effect does it have? It, it, it stops sense. you from farting. No, no, it scents your fart. Oh, so it, it makes it so it comes out smelling gingery or rose-like or violet. <laughs> How much more disturbed would you be by a date if their arse smelled of ginger? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to move on to our next act in a second. Oh. Uh, in 2015, um, Seattle Aquarium had a Valentine's event. In fact, they have this every year where you can watch octopuses have sex. Um, but the one in 2015, they had to cancel, in fact, um, due to cannibalism concerns. Um, because they were worried that their male octopus called Kong was too big for his partner and that he was going to eat her. <laughs> it's awful when that happens, when one person's just a bit bigger than the other and they accidentally eat their partner. <laughs> uh, should we move on to our next fact? It is time for fact number three, and that is James. 
Okay, my fact this week is that during World War II, the guns of the ship, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, were cleaned by wrapping a priest in a large cloth and pulling him through the barrels like a human pipe cleaner. (laughs) So cool. It does not sound very true, does it? Um, But this is true. And this was... um, So I read this, first of all, in a book, which is called A Field Guide, but it's not about field. (laughs) It's called A Field Guide to the English Clergy um, by Fergus Butler Gailey. And it's about a guy called Lancelot Fleming. And this guy was pretty amazing. He was a priest, and he was a priest in the the services during the war. Um, But there's loads of amazing things about him. He met his first wife after a massive drinking binge where he picked up and put on a motorbike helmet and then saw her in the street and said to her, I'm a space bishop. (laughs) (laughs) And three years later, she married him. (laughs) People weren't even going into space at this point, were they? No, he was was a man ahead of his time. Wow. But they did know that space existed. Yes, and I guess they assumed you'd need to wear a helmet there. I guess so. Um, um, he, yeah. Did he volunteer himself for the, the cannon cleaning? Um, or... Yes, he did. He was a very slight man. Uh, and so it was only for the small cannons? It was up, yeah, so I looked at Wikipedia to see what the cannons were on the HMS Queen Elizabeth, and they had 16 six-inch guns, two three-inch guns, and four five-centimetre guns, and I don't think it was those ones. Well, it could have, he could have cleaned them a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Not by... <laughs> Five-inch gun? No problem. <laughs> I, I, I for anyone what... thinking of writing in, I know that's the diameter, not the length. <laughs> I thought you were just being incredibly... <laughs> no, anyway, so... Uh, but <laughs> They also had um, some 15-inch guns, which you could just about squeeze in if you had really thin shoulders, and a 21-inch torpedo tube, so I think it might have been one of those two. Wow. Chaplains in the army, just very quickly, the modern-day chaplain. Uh, in the U.S. Army, is um, flame resistant. <laughs> what calls that? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, what do you mean by that? So um, this is from Mary Roach's book Grunt, um, and she points out the man of cloth has various different cloths that he can wear when he's going into, say, a tank, or if he's just out where there's combat. Uh, mm. So if if he's if he's uh, sort of just travelling with a field at- artillery. Um, he'll have a, he'll have his cloths, which will be moderately flame retardant, um, insect repellent as well, um, and twenty five percent Kevlar. If he's in a tank mission, he's like really fire resistant. It's a really strong fire resistant, but um, that's too expensive for day to day use. So, and then when he's back at just the camp, he's just wearing normal clothes. But yeah, he's got d- three different outfits for, wow. for not catching on fire. Yeah. Very so cool. Fetch the asbestos priest. <laughs> <laughs> and he also, he doesn't carry any weapons, but he does have an assistant with him at all times who has a gun. So that's the, that's the protection. And they do, they have all these things that they have, like um, they have um, portable confessionals, should they need to have a quick confessional out in the field. Um, they have containers that are turned into chapels, and they have extended shelf life communion wafers. Wow. It's, it's very cool. No one so. likes a stale communion wafer, do they? 
so I was trying to find out about more priests, and uh, there was someone called Hugh Barrett Leonard, who was a British clergyman, who had a title which was Extraordinary Confessor, uh, which I think is a proper title, but he really pushed it. So once when a woman asked to hear confession outside a church, he just held up a tennis racket between them. <laughs> that, that served. That's amazing. <laughs> The Telegraph ran his obituary and it said that although he mostly heard confessions in his room, he was prepared to do so behind a hedge. (laughs) That's so good. We have such a tradition of weird clergy in the UK, don't we? Yeah. Uh, There was a guy called the Reverend Edward Drax Free and his congregation tried to get him out of the priesthood because he was repeatedly drunk and he was stealing lead from the church roof. (laughs) And to stop them from getting rid of him, he decided to lock himself in his study with his favourite maid, a brace of pistols, and a stack of French pornography. <laughs> That's nice. a real slam on the maid, I think. <laughs> they offended. A, there was another guy from the 1800s called Reverend Robert Hawker, um, and he was both a priest and a mermaid. That was... <laughs> yeah. That was the thing he really wanted to be. So he made a wig out of seaweed, um, and then he was naked apart from oilskin around his legs, and he rode out to a rock, uh, which was called Bude Harbour, uh, and he sat on it, and he just would sing, uh, and then go home and, you know, go to church. Well, wasn't, didn't, didn't his sort of mermaid reign end, or merman reign end, when he went out, and he did this as a prank for the locals, and everyone was looking at him through their eyeglasses they had at the time, and then he overheard one of the like, bigger, burlier farmers go, right, I'm going to go and get my gun, we've got to shoot him down. And he ducked <laughs> underwater and never tried the prank again. Whoa, <laughs> um, some stuff on maybe cannons, or guns, or something yeah, like sure, that. That's yeah. what the fact's about. So, um... The cannon kind of came into Europe in the 16th century. Um, before that, they used trebuchets, uh, which was where they flung stuff along. And a lot of people liked them because of their phallicism, um, for obvious reasons. So um, at the siege of Mirandola, the Pope at the time, Pope Julius, was um, quoted as saying, now we'll see whose bowls are bigger, mine or Louis." <laughs> Uh, and, and they also thought, because they were so um, phallic in shape, they thought that if you could make them excited, it would stop them from working. And so at the siege... Honestly. What? Yeah. At the siege of Chekiang in 1861 to 1862, Taiping rebels had prostitutes take off their trousers and moon the forces in the hope that it would cause the cannon to misfire or burst. <laughs> or burst. No. Honestly, it's history, Anna. That's wow. history. That feels like a flimsy excuse by the Taiping rebels. <laughs> um, wow. Well, some ship's guns have things called uh, tampions, which comes from exactly the same root as tampons. Okay. And these are basically plugs for the guns, and it's to stop the guns' insides rusting when they're not being used. And wow. there used to be an, an old method of doing it, which was really cool to stop rust. They would just put a cannonball inside the barrel and then slosh a load of olive oil inside... And so then, when the ship's bumping up and down, the cannonball rolls the olive oil up and down the barrel, and it doesn't rust. Oh, cool. That's very clever. That's very good. Yeah. I read about a... Um, a uh, it's not a cannon. It's a, it's a gun type. It's, and it, but it wasn't shooting bullets. This is a thing that would shoot into the air a bunch of mines 
that would be attached to parachutes, so mines like you would get in the ground. And the yeah. idea is that this was to stop ships from being attacked by planes. So the planes would come, the parachutes would latch onto the planes, tangle up, swing the mines into the plane and explode the plane. Wow. So that was the idea. It's an incredible idea. Um, the problem was is they kept launching these into the sky and the airplanes could see them and they knew what was coming so they could get out of the way. So it never got them. And what actually they didn't really count on is there's a lot of wind out there and very often the wind would blow the mines on the parachutes right back to the boat that launched them. Yeah. And they suffered more British deaths from that than they did of... Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, Where was that? Uh, it was in, I believe it was in the Second World War. Really? Um, I, but we can edit that out. That's... <laughs> Torpedoes, so you could have torpedoes and ships, and they've just invented a new torpedo that can fire humans. What? So this is, I, I believe, even though I haven't seen it, it's in You Only Live Twice. James Bond gets in a torpedo gun and gets fired through it. I read on the internet. Wow. That may be true or maybe not true, but apparently there's this new thing where you can get in a little kind of torpedo-shaped thing with you and your mate, and it will fire you off, and it helps you to get closer to the enemy. Um, it's over a range of 10, it says 10 nm, which I don't think is nanometers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nautical miles. Nautical, <laughs> nautical miles. Hang on, torpedoes a... you 10 nautical miles? 10 nautical miles, yeah. How, how do you survive the landing? Uh, well, well, you're underwater the whole way. Underwater? It's a torpedo. Yeah. But these, some of the earliest torpedoes <laughs> were... <laughs> got it? <laughs> But some of the earliest torpedoes were underwater ones. And they were sort of... Oh, my God. <laughs> it's catching. <laughs> some of the earliest torpedoes were ride, uh, rideable oh, torpedoes. They? Yeah. The, in fact, some of the very first ones had oh, two-man crews where you would get on it and motor yourself along, and then you would um, leave the torpedo there next to the enemy ship <laughs> and then hopefully sail around and back. Yeah. i got one last thing, which is on religion and boats bringing the two things in together. Uh, and this is from this year. Two students from Christ Church Academy in Jacksonville, which is in Florida, um, they were swept out to sea. And uh, it was two of them. Then they thought they were going to be lost. For, um, they thought they were going to die out there. And they spent their whole time praying to God to be saved. Um, and they finally were saved by a passing boat. And that boat was called Amen. <laughs> How cool is that? Very nice. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that between 1910 and 1912, the Washington Post frequently tried to interview the president's pet cow. <laughs> <laughs> and was she just very coy? Didn't give no, interviews? she was very chatty, according to the reporters of the Washington Post. <laughs> so this was a specific cow... Um, she was owned by President William Taft, who was president at the time. She was actually the last cow ever to graze freely on the White House lawn. Her name was Pauline Wayne, uh, which is a weird name for a cow. Um, but she, they, they ran over 20 stories about her in this short two-year period. Um, so one of them, the reporter from the Post, asked her if she was milked without her consent. And... <laughs> It reported that, to each query, modest Pauline returned from her soft brown eyes a glance bespeaking reproach and indignation. <laughs> Which is to say in bovine, he did not. It's very hashtag me moo. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
She was very famous. She was a very famous cow. You could buy yeah. souvenir milk from Pauline Wayne. She really? was, and she used to go on tour, didn't she? Yeah. She got, in fact, she got lost at one point, right? So she would go on tour around the country, and so her milk could be sold at agricultural fairs and stuff. And once she was accidentally put on a standard cattle car with the masses, instead with the masses of cows, instead of her <laughs> usual like private luxury cow coach, and she was taken to the slaughter. And I think she was just, she was missing for two days, and there was panic across the land, and she was just saved. It was, this was in 1911, I think. Someone oh. just spotted her in time and so that looks like the president's cow how do you tell the difference between the president's cow and a non-president's cow oh she kept on singing the stars and stripes <laughs> when she first came to the white house she was actually a present from a wisconsin senator um, to taft and when she first arrived uh, she was pregnant and the president offered the calf to a local farmer because he couldn't look after them both and the washington times um, said that pauline has not been consulted but as a government employee, she is subject to the executive mandate. <laughs> it just feels like in 1910, 11, and 12, there just wasn't that much going on, and they really. <laughs> well, we really don't really hear much news. about Taft, do we? Because no. who was it? Was what uh, Theodore Roosevelt before him, and yeah. Woodrow yeah. Wilson or someone after him, who were quite famous, and he just doesn't really come up much. No? He's mostly famous for being very fat, isn't he? Yeah, yes. that was his, his, he's the fattest ever president, right? He is, although we're not quite sure about Trump. <laughs> but Trump is definitely in the top two, I think. Yeah. 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 He's mostly known for a myth, isn't he? Which is, he was said to have been stuck in his bathtub. He went for a bath and he couldn't get back out again. But it's, it's a complete lie. Um, yeah. But that's one thing that a lot of people will say, oh, William Taft, the guy stuck in the bath. Yeah, he wasn't that famous. Like, um, Theodore Roosevelt was really famous. And one of the ways that he got he carried on being famous is he named the teddy bear or it was named after him um, the teddy from Teddy Roosevelt comes from the teddy bear and when Theodore Roosevelt left office toy manufacturers still needed to sell toys and so they came up with something called a Billy Possum which was named after Taft um, and we all have one of those today yeah. <laughs> how for your pet cow to have been more famous than you as the president. Yeah. <laughs> and she wasn't his first cow, was she? He had another one in, who died in 1910, I think, and she was called Mooly Wooly. <laughs> and she died uh, because she... So he loved them so much, he used to keep them stabled with the horses, and so she shared the horses' food, and she died after eating too many oats. Because yeah. she'd never oh. been told that oats were for horses. Apparently. And even if they had told her, she wouldn't understand. No. <laughs> it's a very human tragedy. <laughs> um, I, this is a, I, I think this is true. That the, you know the name Fido for a dog? Yes. Sort of archetypal dog name. This comes from Abraham Lincoln's dog, Fido, which I didn't where know. Where did he get the name from? Do you know? I don't know where he got it from. I guess, I mean, it looks like Latin, I trust. Well, yeah. Um, but Lincoln's dog, Fido, was also assassinated a few months after President Lincoln was assassinated. No, no way. Way. By a dog. <laughs> yeah, by a dog. Wow. It was at a dog theatre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's <like> Crufts. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I don't know who assassinated it. But it was a deliberate assassination. Yeah, I, I feel like using the word assassination <laughs> to describe Fido's death trivialises the death of Abraham Lincoln, yeah. but... <laughs> No, I think we need to elevate Fido's death. 
Um, just on pet cows, okay. there's one quite famous cow, Emily the cow. And this is a cow who's very well known in the 90s. So in 1995, she was off to the slaughter in Massachusetts and she escaped. So the workmen at the slaughterhouse were having lunch, I believe. And she leapt over a gate and fled. And the workers saw her and chased after her, couldn't catch her. And she wandered the state for 40 days. And the police were sent out with instructions to kill on sight. And they couldn't catch her. And she foraged in people's backyards and stuff. And it's thought that people sort of helped her by leaving out bits of grass in their backyard. <laughs> leaving out bits of grass. <laughs> Maybe some oh, of their I've... backyards already contained grass. Where did they leave? Where did they leave the grass on the lawn? <laughs> <laughs> that cow must be wandering around, going, "I can't find any grass anywhere." <laughs> I can't see the grass for the grass. So sorry. Um, she spent maybe 40... it was made of invisible green grass. <laughs> <laughs> so she spent 40 days and 40 nights effectively wandering in the wilderness. Yes, she was the Jesus of the cowgirls. <laughs> <laughs> she was seen once running with a herd of deer. And she totally... A miracle, a holy miracle. Go on. <laughs> she eluded capture. Well, and she ended up in an abbey. So there you go. So there was an... E- Wait, are you, t- are you sure she didn't end up in an abattoir? Because that just sounds <laughs> more likely. No, there was a place called Peace Abbey, which was an interfaith movement who saw the story, went to the abattoir and bought her for a dollar. She's still on the run at this point. And then they went to try and find her and they caught her and she lived with them for a further eight years happily. And she ended up being a bridesmaid in two weddings. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we said in the course of this podcast, you can find us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At old John the Pooh Smuggler. <laughs> James? <laughs> oh, so, do you want me to say the normal one? No, as well? no, it's fine. It's fine. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> You'll just have to keep in the poo smuggling bit now. <laughs> I'm really going to cut that out and just have that. So you're <laughs> the next 20 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the mysterious old John the Pooh smuggler? He sounds like Andrew Hunter Murray. (laughs) James? At James Harkin. Uh, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from our previous episodes, upcoming tour dates, bits of merchandise. Thank you so much, Amsterdam. That was awesome. We'll see you again. Good night. <laughs>